Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and this is Claim Your Confidence. I'm thrilled you're listening again today. I am so excited to introduce you to my next guest, Stephanie Horton. But first of all, a quick word from our sponsors. I could not be more thrilled about the interview I'm having today. And first and foremost, as many of you know, I love color more than anything in the world. And Stephanie Horton has already won my heart over (laughs) because she walked in wearing this absolutely stunning multicolor dress. So thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. And thank you for showing up in such a major way. No, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here and, you know, just getting my getting my confidence going with my color. (laughs) Well, you're here to claim it, so let's do it. I want to tell everyone a little bit about your career, because when you look over the span of your career, there is one thing that comes to mind, and that is growth strategy. You have had a career that has spanned some of the top companies in the world and just keeps evolving, which is so amazing. You're currently the Global Consumer Marketing Director for Commerce at Google. But before that, you've had jobs as varied as the Chief Strategy Officer at Alexander Wang. You've also been at the New York Times, Vogue, shop up. I mean, you've been to Farfetch, you've hit tech, you've hit fashion, you've hit sort of the, the commerce side of all of it. And I can't wait to dig in. Where did this all begin for you, Stephanie? Where did you grow up? <laughs> this all began on the south side of Chicago, oh, right um, you know, with my mom and dad. And I think, you know, especially when we talk about confidence, you know, I still look to my mom. My mom was the person who got up every day, got dressed, full hair and makeup before she went downstairs. Like, you know know what I mean? Like she would not arrive in the kitchen until she was ready to go. And I think, you know, she was always that person that you looked up to who, this is going to date me, but, you know, if something went wrong somewhere, she'd be writing a letter, you know. Um, (laughs) She had things to say. Yeah, she had things to say and she was going to set it right. But she was always a person to me who exuded confidence and knew what she wanted and was very clear about, you know, articulating it. And I think watching her growing up really formed my personality. And my dad the same way. My dad's different. Like he's more quiet, but he's very hardworking. Like he retired literally with three and a half years of sick days because he just did not miss work. So I think work ethic from my dad, but I think personality and, you know, just really being sure of myself from my mom. Yeah. So did your mom work? So my mom was in the healthcare profession. She was a nurse. And um, she also did a lot of things on the side, though. So she um, ended up working with the school system. She did a lot of things with Larabita, which was a hospital for asthma students. She created a lot of healthcare programs in the city of Chicago. She did a citywide health fair for the uninsured that would happen at a church every year. So kids can come get their physicals, their glucose, you know, you can get your vision and, you know, adults too. So she really was that person who championed, I guess, the underserved, yeah, um, which was also something I took back from her. Yeah, but no, she was, she was working always. Always. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, they always say, and I'm sure you would feel the same way, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah. I yeah. truly often feel like if you look at a to-do list with two things on it, you'll sit there all day looking at it. Whereas yeah. if it has 25, you just start punching them out. Exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in the south side of Chicago and did you stay there your entire childhood? 
I stayed there my entire childhood. You know, my parents, like I grew up in an all black neighborhood, um, predominantly black neighborhood. And I think my dad especially was really adamant that this is where we were staying. He did a lot of advocating for making sure we had like the same amount of drugstores as like majority neighborhoods mm-hmm. and advocating for parks. And he was an educator. Like, so I think it was really important to him that you understood where you came from and that we stayed where I was. I went to a private school. Mm-hmm. So I early on really had a juxtaposition of like coming back home, mm-hmm. but going to school where I was probably one of 10. Yeah. So I think early on I had that adjustment, uh, I think, which has really also helped me with confidence later on. Yeah. I wonder even at that early age, were you, when you were going home, but then going to a private school during the day where you're one of 10, how does that affect your confidence? It's funny because growing up, I didn't notice it. I didn't really know. Like, I remember my mom put me in this organization called Jack and Jill, which was like a black organization where you did these activities every month because I came home one day singing the dreidel song. Yeah. And she was like, okay, I think we need to, you need to figure out who is not what you. So I was like, there are many different ways to look at life. Yes. Yeah. We got to figure out. Make sure you're on the right path. Yeah. So I think growing up, I really didn't know the difference because that's just what it was. You know, I would go to school and these were my friends and this is what I would do. And I would come home and these were my friends. This is what I would do. I think it probably became really apparent to me in high school because the private school I went to in high school, you kind of had the same people from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then in high school, other people would apply, you know, and come to the high school. And I think that's when I realized like, oh, are things supposed to be this way? Or, you know, like, and also, you know, my friends who I grew up with on the South side were at other schools that were like a lot more integrated. I mean, the school I went to was diverse, but, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not, <laughs> not, you know, de- it definitely wasn't like a 60-40 situation. Yeah. You know, it was more like a 10, 15, you know, 85. So I think that's when I first started understanding that maybe this wasn't the way things should be, yeah. but it wasn't really apparent to me until I went to college. So I went to University of Michigan and it's a big school Mm -hmm. with a fairly big black community, but that was the first time that there were actually affinity groups. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you would join the lounges in your dorm, which were affinity groups. And that's when I was like, wow, we really are in the minority. And to feel comfortable here, I really do need this group because now I'm a little bit out of sorts. Yeah. You were there, obviously, for four years. Mm -hmm. And what were you doing while you were there? I mean, obviously, you're talking about the affinity groups in terms of your background in terms of the career that you thought you were going to have? Were you even thinking at that age? Because I feel like in college, I'm not sure that I was thinking about a career, but what was going through your mind as you were thinking about majors and about your next steps in life? Yeah, it's really funny because the years I was in college from 89 to 93, remember the economy was kind of not that great. So the whole focus was to get to the business school so you could go do something in finance, you could get a job. You know, like even though obviously Michigan has a great liberal arts program and everything else, I think my focus, like most of my friends were either going pre-med, they were going to law school, or they were trying to get into the business school. Mm -hmm. So I think the first two years I was really focused because the business school was the last two years. I was really focused on getting into the business school, as were a lot of my friends. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do with that, Mm -hmm. but it was kind of like ingrained in our head that this is what you need to do to get a job. And when you got there, did it feel right? Did it feel like the right fit? Or were you just sort of like, oh God, is this what work is forever? Because that's what I I would have been doing, by the way, if I didn't going through the paces. I will say Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I loved Michigan. I met like a lot of great friends there, but I think I was pretty much going through the paces. I don't think I really found 
my passion or really found my way until after business school. And like when I had switched to marketing and I had had my first job after that and I had one experience and I'm like, oh my God, this is what I'm good at. So you were in business school and obviously the job market is difficult at this point. How do you find this first job? Because I love the first job story for people when they leave school and go somewhere because it's always so different for everyone. Yeah, undergrad was good. So we had lots of people coming to campus and recruiting and the same with business school. So actually I had one friend who was working at an agency and I'm like, you know, this seems cool. Like your job seems cool. Before I went to business school, my job was not. So I'm going to try, (laughs) I'm going to try this. And so she had just started working at this agency called KBA Marketing. It was a subsidiary of a bigger agency called Draft Worldwide. Mm -hmm. This was before a lot of the consolidation of the agency. So Howard Draft's still fully on the agency. Mm-hmm. And he had invested in this new experiential marketing agency. I'm really dating myself. <laughs> you just put air quotes around experiential marketing. <laughs> yeah, called KBA Marketing. I mean, uh-huh. we used to do things like Nike was one of our clients and we would have this thing called the fun police. Mm-hmm. And so people would be on bikes and if you weren't wearing Nike, we'd give you a ticket. Oh. And then you would get <laughs> like coupons to go to go to the Nike. So this is the kind, you know, this is way back when, like no iPhones marketing. for anyone who was living in this yeah. turn. There were no iPhones. There were no iPhones. There weren't even smartphones. There we were- still had like a flip, you yeah. know. It was like literal a flip. Yeah. 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 So it was doing that kind of thing. And she was like, this is what I do. And I'm like, you know, that sounds like something I could do. It's strategic, but it's fun. It's coming up with ideas, but something really fun. So I actually applied there and I got a job on the new business team. So that was like kind of my first job after business school. I worked with the head of new business for KBA. And you loved it. I loved it. And I think when I really found my path. We got the account for Cadillac to launch the Escalade. Oh, fun. Um, Yeah. So this is a long time ago. And, you know, they wanted to do something really different. Like, how do we just not, you know, do this at a car show and have a, have a dinner? Like, how do we really judge this up? So they hired us and we decided that we were going to go to the Super Bowl in Miami. And I just happened to have a friend who had taken a job as a general manager of the new Delano Hotel. Okay. Oh, the new, the Delano. new Delano Hotel. I remember with the white curtains yeah. billowing down. Yeah. Loved that hotel. Same as Robert Todak. Wasn't open yet. <laughs> um, so I was like, you know, we're going to come for the Super Bowl. Is there something we could do together with Cadillac? So we brainstormed and we decided we're going to park Cadillacs outside and like the guests from the Super Bowl could be chauffeured to different events in this new car. And I was like, okay, because if we get really good people in the cars, maybe they'll be interested in, you know, taking a test drive and we can have another fleet of cars for that. So we ended up getting like LL Cool J. Oh my gosh. And Carmen Electra. And oh, like Carmen Electra. These, yeah, I mean, back then, this was like, this oh, is no, a coup. this is A list. <laughs> yeah. A list. Um, and they got into the cars and they ended up taking test drives. And we ended up actually selling like six Escalades order from this whole activation at the Super Bowl. Wow. Um, and I think that was my first time realizing that partnerships expanded reach. Yes. And I was like, this was actually a really good idea. This hotel and this car, you know, they're very similar. You know, they, they were trying to position, because remember at the time, Cadillac wasn't so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, they had the like Katera. My and grandmother the, had a Cadillac, yep. 1,000%. Everyone's <laughs> grandmother Cadillac. had a Cadillac. Exactly. Nobody's kid had a Cadillac. Matthew McConaughey yeah. was not driving around yeah, whispering exactly. a Cadillac so at this point. So the whole point of this is how do we reposition the brand a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, we wanted to do something untraditional. And that was when I was like, okay, marrying like-minded 
brands or, you know, where you're trying to go with a brand who's already there mm -hmm. is a good way to expand your reach and, and brand yourself. Yeah. And I think that was the first time that I realized like, okay, I think I could, I have something here. And so you were young at this point, right? Yeah, it was this in my is like 20s. Early 20s, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, mid, yeah. Mm -hmm. And really exciting to be there and yeah. to be in the middle of this. Yeah. I definitely remember that feeling in those sort of early days of work, of having these experiences. And then if something works, you just feel like yeah. you want to shout it from the rooftop. Exactly, yeah. So the marketing thing carried you how long? What was your next step after that? So the next step after that was actually funny. I was buying, um, we ended up going, getting the Audi account uh -huh. at the same agency. And I was buying some advertising in um, Hamptons Magazine for mm -hmm. Audi. And I was talking to a guy named Jason Ben. Oh, I love this. Actually, <laughs> I saw this in your resume. And I laughed because everyone in New York knows Jason yeah, Ben. Exactly. Every single person. Yeah. And so, so Jason's like, I'm watching this magazine called Gotham. You know, because I had, we I had negotiated him hard on these things. I was like, I want this, I want that. He's like, I need you to come work for me. And I was actually moving to New York because the person I was seeing at the time was here. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I. I'll take it. Like I'm coming. I'm doing it. Here and I come. So, out here magazine. I come. Yeah. So I came and launched Gotham, and you know did a lot of work on Hamptons magazine. But again, I think it was a big, a great training ground for me because a lot of the way, especially you know local magazines, were our deals. Yeah. So for me, it was like, okay, how do we get more pages, but also create added value for all of these people? So I ended up because Hamptons magazine was a sponsor of Hamptons Polo. Mm -hmm. I was like, what if we take all the days we have, but actually give them to advertisers so they could have their own branded day at Hamptons Polo. And we ended up selling a lot of pages that way. And I just coming up with ideas like that, we ended up doing something with the Legally Blonde premiere. Uh -huh. I think again, just reinforced like, okay, this, you know, partnership thing is a really good growth vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think I just started really finding my stride about what I was good at. And I think that was probably the turning point of my career and, you know, giving me confidence to go from job to job because I knew what I was good at and I knew what I could do and I knew what I could offer. Uh -huh. So I think I was also good at turning down things that I knew that that's not my lane. That's, that's not my so jam. that's so important yeah. because I think there are so many people, and I would say this very heavily female as yeah. well, yeah. where we tend to want people's approval and therefore we continue to say yes. I can say this even in probably in the first decade of my career, I can't even tell you how many times people would say, well, could you do this? And they just keep adding it on. Yeah. And now I have a running joke with friends who are consultants about scope creep where, yeah. you know, you yeah. start something and then there are 50 things piled on. It's like, yeah. let's refer back to the contract. Exactly. something I often say, yeah. happy to help. Let's refer back to the contract and see what of this exactly. is actually supposed to be. Yeah, part of I mean, it. if it's helpful to me, happy to do it. Exactly, <laughs> I could do. But you know, if it's if helpful it's, to you, plus plus, yeah, exactly. I don't know so but much. but yeah. if it's like not, and I don't know what I'm doing, it's a no. It's a hard pass. <laughs> it's a hard pass. Hard pass. Yeah. Um, so, got the magazine. Hamptons magazine turns into. So that turned into actually the New York Times. So They're I think not small no, brands. Yeah, not, not one of them, brands. Stephanie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was with Jason, I think, for about a year and a half, um, which is, you know, that, that was good. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're really close. We're really great friends now. He's a great guy. Um, but, you know, I think at that point he was like, you know, now we're going to do LA Confidential and do this and that. I think, you know, my focus was like, what can I do next? I felt yeah. like I felt like I'd done that. Mm -hmm. So the New York Times is actually looking for someone to migrate all the classifieds online as well as do some diligence behind a new concept they had called T and a new concept that they had called Thursday Styles. Oh. So I kind of went back to my 
finance roots a little bit and um, went to do diligence on all of these things. So it was like, you know, there's Sunday styles. Would another style section cannibalize the advertising revenue there? Or what, what could we offer there that we're not offering on Sunday? Tea. Do we need another magazine, you know, in the marketplace? And if we did, you know, what would be the offering? How would we position it as a newspaper? Like, what could we offer that, like, a vote? So it was really great work. And also, you know, at that time, like, you know, you were still looking for jobs and yeah. movies and things in the paper yeah. and circling them. They weren't online yet. So that was huge for me because we did that whole migration from the paper to nytimes.com and ended up branding the whole sections like job market, the new movie sections. I did a whole campaign for it, soups to nuts. So back then radio was still really strong, mm -hmm. TV, outdoor. So that was like, I think my first brain to spending a big, you know, pretty healthy budget on a launch. And I think again, for me, I was like, how can we make this cooler? Mm -hmm. So. I was in Starbucks one day and I'm like, you know, there's all these people here like looking for jobs. Like people would be on there, you know, and I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if we started some sort of series to promote our new online job market, you know, at a Starbucks? So I literally went to the manager and I'm like, how can we do this? He's like, well, you have to call the, re you know, I yeah. can't, you know. <laughs> this is Starbucks, He's like, yeah. He's like, I, I don't make any decisions. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, got it. <laughs> so I ended up calling the regional person who ended up putting me in touch with, you know, someone in Seattle. And we kind of like came to a cool agreement that we'd start with like five events and a Starbucks in New York. And we would invite people like, I was like, we'll take care of the panel. Mm -hmm. So I would have a panel of hiring managers. And we would put the notice out. They did it through theirs. We did it through our channels. And people could come basically hear all these hiring managers talk about jobs and ask them questions. And afterwards, they had the chance to actually pitch themselves to these people. And so we did one and we thought we were going to get like 50 people and like 200. We couldn't even, you know, it was like, fit them all. yeah, we couldn't fit them all. And by the third one, the news ended up coming to cover it. And then we decided to do it more locations. By the end, I was doing them in like eight markets, oh my gosh. you know, across. And then we started verticalizing them. So we were like, you know, okay, now we're going to do the, you know, kind of DC. Like we had, I remember I was like, this is so weird, the FBI, the NSA. <laughs> oh like I'm like in. With it's the very head, Washington. You know, yeah, all these, you know, in, in DC. The Senate, one it, for the Congress. Yeah, the DC, uh, local DC Starbucks. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but they ended up being like really great. And obviously it, it, it tied back to the site and people were going on the site to find out where all these things were and using the site. Yeah. So again, it was like, you know, how do we marry things that may not seem to be really obvious partners, but could really make something cool if they come together? It's so funny. I ran partnerships for Christie's for 11 years. I started the division for the company yeah. and I have such a partnerships brain. And as I listen to you speak, I think about all of the people who've worked for me over the course of my career. And it's amazing because it's such a specific skill yeah. to be able to see something that very few people understand. But I always say it's like 3D chess. You're yeah. looking at a board and there are things coming in from every direction and somehow you can always find the center. But I also love that you keep coming back to the word cool because I've loved that about events always and activations. Yeah. It's like, does it have that would I go? Well, that's, factor. that is my, I checks the team. That's, that's my like literally litmus test. Yes, exactly. I'm like, do I want to be here? Yeah. Or <laughs> and if I was team, tired, would I go? Exactly. And if the answer is no, I'm like, we well, didn't do it right yet. We yeah. have to keep going, yeah. you know? Because, so um, you know, people are busy. No one, you know, especially now, 
you know, having been a CMO and a CSO and knowing, you know, how busy or how many things you have to go to, like when you get all those lame invites, it's like, I don't know. No way. (laughs) Hard pass. Yeah. Someone once said something to me, which I've taken and I really use this now. If someone hand you that invite right now, today, would you go tonight? Yeah. And that actually, especially when you factor in families and all of the other things that can go, would I go to this tonight? Yeah. There aren't actually that many things that you would especially as a woman, have to go home, find a dress, get all, you know, put your no, makeup on, put your like heels on, go. putting on all the right things. Actually, when I got the invite for your book, I was like, oh, cool place. Yeah. Seems cool. Oh, thanks. I'm going. No, <laughs> but literally, it's like, I'll go. But, you know, sometimes you get those and you're like, wait, where? What? I know. No. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And we were talking even before the podcast about a book signing that I've held where no one showed up. Yes. And I, it's funny because I really do believe that there are things that make people go to things and that can either be the other people who are attending, sort of the yep. peer, the host committee of people who are aspirational, people they would want to meet. Yeah. Interesting content and a really good place to do something. Yeah. Yep. So you've really shown even at this early stage in your career how there's kind of a through line that starts and it continues and what I think is so extraordinary about you which you don't often see in people who've had a career that has led to this point in their life is the movement from place to place because certainly the way that I was trained it was you go to a company and you stay forever and it's amazing how much you're learning as you're progressing through these jobs. Yeah. So tell us, the New York Times takes you where? Yeah, so the New York Times takes me to Vogue. And that was actually the first time that I realized the power of network Mm. because one of my friends was really good friends with the associate publisher of Vogue. And they were like, you know, they're looking for someone to really help monetize the Met and the CFD Book Fashion Fund, as well as figure out the non-endemic business. So non-fashion, so yeah. liquor, automotive. And I was like, well, I can do all of that. <laughs> You're like, yeah. uh, let me call the Delano. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let me go back there. And so she's like, and I recommended you. I'm like, okay. I wasn't really thinking of, you know, I actually liked my job. And by that time we had launched Tea, we had launched Thursday Style. So I had some, you know, we had done the whole migration onto nytimes.com. So I had some successes behind me. So I was like, I'm kind of, you know, I like it here. But I remember I went to that interview and I didn't really... I don't know if I really wanted to be at that interview. It was weird because I walked in and, the, you know, in the old days, it was on 42nd. Yeah. And, you know, you would walk in, there's like the big boat and <laughs> yeah, like exactly. you have to sit outside in the hall and wait. And I'm like, okay, this is a lot, yeah. you know? Yeah. Know. Very devil wears problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I kind of went back to my, I did not have a lot of confidence in that interview because yeah. like everywhere else I had walked in thus far, I, you know, I felt like, you know, okay, these people seem okay. Like, you know, I got this. Yeah. I didn't got that. You know, I didn't have that, you know. So I walked into the interview and I remember it was Deb Kavanaugh's office and, you know, she's asking me all these questions. I'm interviewing and I'm like, okay, I want this job. Yeah. Like, you know, so. Please like me. I want you to like me. Yeah. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, I need to like focus, like, you know, because I kind of wasn't sure. And now I'm like, I want this job. Yeah. So I interviewed and literally they called me that night and they were like, okay, when can you start? Oh my gosh. And I'm like, what? 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 Because, you know, I was expecting, so everyone's like, how did it go? And it was kind of like what we were talking about earlier. I was like, I don't think it went. Like, I was weird. (laughs) I think I had a nervous tick that I didn't even know I had. It was just weird. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't in my right mind at first. I didn't think I wanted this job and then I clicked halfway through and then I tried to like I think I tried to make too strong of a comeback <laughs> so it was, it was a little weird but you're like there was the first half of the interview and then the second one was remarkably yeah, different yeah exactly so I'm like I don't know what this woman bought but yeah so then I ended up giving my two weeks notice and landing at Vogue and I think that was a really good turning point as well 
I got to do so many great things. I mean, we did the first CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund show and event. You know, it was basically, I got the first ever sponsor um, who was Lexus and they, they signed on. We did that show um, for them for like four years, four or five years. And then it went on to Cartier um, and we moved it to Chateau Marmont. And then it was fancy because it was in LA. Yeah. But, you know, wrote the first sponsorship proposal for the Met. I created the series called Evenings in Vogue mm-hmm. for our non-endemic advertisers. So basically if you were a car or liquor, you could like showcase your product at, at this event. event. But I did it at, it, it all started, we, were do, we needed to do something in Chicago. And I called my friend Jennifer Trotter for like locations. And she was like, you know, she was married to Charlie Trotter's brother. And she's like, why don't we do it at the restaurant? And like that restaurant's never been open to anybody. Like no one's ever rented it out. She's like, no, I think I get this done. And she got it done. And like, we ended up having like the mayor's wife. Like, I mean, everyone came because no one had ever been able to go to an event there. Going back to the cool location, power yeah, of network. And that got yeah. me onto something. And like, if yeah. we do it at you know, places people can't go, yeah. you know, this is going to be a draw. So ended up rolling that out. We did it in 10 cities and I, you know, I had hosts for each city and that brought me onto my third thing that I launched there, which is called the Vogue 100. Oh, of course. Um, yeah, we worked closely with you guys, actually. Yeah, so this was back before in this form. So when I started it, it was literally 10 of my friends in like different cities who would help me host events. Mm-hmm. And I ran out of hosts. So I'm like, okay, let me ask some others. So then I ended up having like five people in New York, like Chicago, I had 10 because you know, I was from there. Yeah. And I was like, what if I got like 10 people per city in like the top 10 cities? and like created this group. So we finally got there, like all the friends had recommended people. Mm -hmm. So I got there to a hundred and we formalized it. We got stationary, we wrote letters inviting people formally to be in it. Um, And they would host events for us. But then I started getting inbounds. Like, you know, Saks was like, do you think, you know, the New York people could come and look at our collection and stay with it? Because these were influencers before they were really influencers. They were like really great ladies Mm -hmm. in each of these cities who had great were tastemakers, yeah. had great style, exactly. you know, shopped a lot. So we ended up then, like Chanel would send them their cream before it went out. Like Neiman Marcus group ended up calling them all in and looking at their year's thing. And like, you know, this is what we're planning on buying. Do you like these designers? What do you think about the store? So it ended up being like a really valuable group. Think tank um, almost. Think tank, yeah. yeah. So that was the original form. Obviously it's evolved, you know, in the 20 years since I've left or 15 years since I've left. But yeah, so that was the original Vogue 100. And so fun. Yeah. You know, one other thing you keep coming back to, which is a passion, is networking. Yes. And the power of networking and how, you know, even just the amplification of everything over one person in each city becoming 10 people in each city. It's amazing how this has also been something that's helped you throughout your entire career, just leaning back on people that you've met along the way. And probably a lot of having gone through so many different industries is that you have that reach in different industries as well. How do you use your network even sort of like on a daily basis at this point in your career? I mean, I always tell people, you should treat your network like you treat your job. I mean, it is probably the most important thing that I've acquired. It's how I do my job. Like, you know, if I need a person or a place, like, you know, I call it Megan Salt. I'm like, do you know X, Y, Z? You know, can you introduce me? Or if, you know, it's a political person, I have people I could call. And and I think you don't get anywhere alone. And I think I've learned that, you know, I think for sure you need to use 
people, you know, not use them, but, you know, use the people, you know, to help you because like, you know, why struggle when you can get things done much faster? So I really use my network and I build it continuously. It's it's like I have, I actually have an org chart (laughs) and I'll tell you early on, I had a really great boss. Her name was Diane Seifer Conrad. And that's what you called her, not Diane not Miss Conrad, it was Diane Zebra Conference. <laughs> and she was like, you need to treat your network like you do a job. And mm-hmm. so there was an org chart that she created, had five people on it. It was like a mentor, a sponsor, someone that you look up to, the reach person that you want to meet, mm-hmm. and then someone outside the company who's important to you. Five okay. roles. Five roles. Write that down, everyone, if you're listening. Yeah. Pull out a piece of paper or your phone if you're younger yes. and put that on there. <laughs> yep. And so you fill in those five roles. And so I started doing the exercise and over the years, it's like there's people under each of those roles. So now Mm -hmm. I have like, you know, probably four sponsors, you know, 10 mentors, you know, like some are longer than others and you Mm -hmm. can't grow the list too much because these are people you need to protect and stay in touch with and, you know, make sure they, you can't call them up after 10 years and not hearing from you. So, you know, you need to like nurture this group, but it's a group that I've grown. and have become really, really valuable to me. And there are people who tell me like, I think you stay there too long or when are you gonna join a board or why aren't you doing this? So I think, you know, and they've also helped me get jobs. Like they've recommended me for positions. That's how I got my Alex Wang position and actually my, uh, the CMO position at Farfetch. I wanna go back to your career, but I also wanna say from what you just said about networking, Mm -hmm. one thing that I think is the most important part about networking is what you said about not waiting 10 years to get in touch. Yes. Because I do sometimes think that people don't understand that networking is an ongoing process. And a lot of people think that networking means when you need something, you reach out. No, no, no. 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 You, I mean, I set up lunches, coffees, you know, just even Um, check-ins. And I think it goes both ways, right? You know what I mean? At some point, you know, the mentor kind of becomes the mentee. Mm -hmm. And I even see this in some of the people I mentor. I'm like, okay, now you're telling me what to do. (laughs) So I think it's important to protect that network. You can't just meet someone and leave and then be like, oh yeah, this person's in my Rolodex and call them just like you said, just because you need something. Exactly. That's not the that's not the definition of any of those roles. No, absolutely. And I think that that is something that we're seeing more and more that people understand that networking isn't, you know, a cheap glass of wine in a windowless conference room. Right. It's actually an evolution of human, shared human goals. Yeah. More than yeah. anything. 100%. You left the New York Times and you went to Alexander Wang? No, I left the New York Times and actually went to Vogue. Then I went to Shop Up after that. So literally I was writing the Met proposal for Amazon and the people who were spearheading that were like, you know, it was clear they'd never worked with a fashion <laughs> magazine. And I was like, you can't ask for any of that. Like, I'm just <laughs> going to be really clear. Like, just go ahead and delete that page. Yeah, I'm like, none of that's happening. But I'm like, here's what can happen. <laughs> and so we built a really good proposal and they were like, you know, we just bought this company, I think they were three years into it called Shop Up. And, you know, the original team's moving out, we're kind of moving in more Amazon, you know, cause they, they had bought it. And they're like, you know, we need someone to run marketing. Would you be interested? And I think at that point I had been at Vogue almost seven years. It's probably the longest job I've ever had. I was gonna say, I thought you were gonna say two years. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was the longest job I've ever had. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it there. They were really, really, really good to me, uh, you know, the whole, like from the editorial side to the business side. So mm-hmm. I really appreciated it. But one thing I did notice is that we were really, but we were launching our web, relaunching our website and our first app in 2010, like, uh, you know. Yeah. And I think I realized like, you know, 
I think there's a train leaving the station that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things I have been really careful about with every job is like, what am I going to get here that I don't know? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is nothing, I'm not going. Yeah. And I think in Amazon, it was all about performance marketing, e-commerce, you know, this new thing that was happening that, you know, I felt I didn't understand at all. Mm-hmm. So I went and that was a really great opportunity for me. I think another turning point in my career because I ended up launching China. So I spent a lot of time in Shanghai just learning the culture, you know, the differences. Like we had to land servers there. Like they don't use Google, they use Baidu. So, you know, it was just a different way of doing business. And I ended up doing the same thing in Russia and parts of the Middle East. So that opened me up to a really global perspective. Had you traveled a lot in your life before that? No, not that way. Like, yeah whole U.S. and I, you know, obviously I've been to Europe and that, you know, you know, for some things with Vogue, but not like this. So that kind of opened up a new avenue. And I actually only stayed there two and a half years because I ended up getting a call from Farfetch. Um, Condé Nast had invested in them. Mm-hmm. And I got a call from the investment arm of Condé Nast and they remembered me and they were like, we're looking for someone to run the U.S. So I was like, okay, well, I'll interview. And during the interview, they ended up understanding had all this international experience and they were like, oh my God, we have a CMO position, but it's based in London. And I was like, well, I'm not moving to London. So I guess we'll just, I don't know if you don't want me <laughs> for this US this position, interview. like see you, after, you know, <laughs> see you later. And like two weeks later, Jose Neves, who um, founded Farfetch was in New York and they were like, can you just meet Jose for coffee? And literally after that coffee, I was packing my bags and moving to London, like <laughs> putting him on your org chart. Yeah, yeah, he's on my org chart. Like he is forever on my org chart. Um, but he was so prolific. He was such a visionary. And, you know, even though like I didn't really understand who was talking about, I was like, I want to be part of this. Yeah. And I went, you know, for a decent pay cut, but like a lot of equity, you know, so it was a chance. I'm like, I'm moving across the country but I believe in this guy and I believe in this business. Mm-hmm. And so I went and, and it paid off. I mean, that was probably the, you know, one of the biggest jobs I had before this job. Yeah. When I went, we had like one and a half offices. I think there were like 200 people in the company. When I left, we had opened offices from Shanghai to Tokyo, to the Middle East, to Moscow, South America. We had 3000 employees, you know, I launched a VIP department. I launched advertising. You know, I did my own job. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a great experience. And the, the team, I think, you know, when I went, there was really only myself, Jose, a woman named Suzanne, and the CTO. So like even hiring the CFO and like Giorgio, who ended up running um, all of the boutiques and, you know, changing to brands and just the evolution of what happened between when I started to when I left was crazy. By the time I left, we were building websites for other companies and it was just not boutiques, it was brands and the the company had just exploded and it was just a crazy, crazy like five years, which led to an eventual IPO and so many lessons. There's like, you know, from understanding like changes in org that need to happen from 200 to 2000, Mm -hmm. decision-making. It it was just, you know, it's just, you just, you're, and you're learning as you go. Like none of us really knew what we were doing. So, you know, we would open an office and be like, oops, like we didn't, (laughs) (laughs) this this is kind of missing here, you know? So, and and then doing it in countries that, you know, like hiring a country manager and, you know, so it was a, it was creating a a job you didn't even know that existed before you arrived there. Exactly. You know, and so, and understanding culture, like, you Mm know, you know, I remember, opening um, the Tokyo office and, you know, no one would push back. Mm. 
whether you're wrong or right, you know, just because it's a different mannerism. So I had yeah. to learn to really communicate and be like, I can be wrong. Yeah. Actually, I probably am wrong because I don't really know. <laughs> I actually don't know what I'm talking, what I'm about, talking right about here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, I need you guys to tell me. And just, you know, understanding the different nuances in culture and how people work, you know, became really important. It is such an amazing thing to work outside of something you're familiar with and the traditions and the roles. And I can say we worked a lot in Brazil for a period of time. And I remember doing an event and the women who ran the office who I could not have loved more said to me a hundred times, we don't use place cards here. We can't seat people at a dinner. And I was sort of like, you know, I've run events for here for at this point. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Two, two decades, like we're fine. And there was a massive rainstorm. It was in Sao Paulo, which apparently in Sao Paulo means that everything stops. So if you have an hour of traffic, it becomes three hours. So people don't go out. Why right. would you go out? It's going to take you yeah. three times as long to go. So we had a downstairs and an upstairs to a restaurant. And eventually what we had to do was throw away all the place cards because half the people didn't show up. We closed the upstairs of the restaurant so they didn't even know there were tables there. Oh my so God. that only, because only half the party showed up. <laughs> And they said to me afterwards, and after many drinks, do you understand now why we don't use place cards? And I, I've never tried to use a place card in Brazil again. Yeah. The lesson was learned. But yeah. it is such an amazing and humbling in many ways, yeah, I think, experience. experience that really makes you think. It's some, Travel to me is always such an incredible amplifier of what you don't know. Yeah. But it also forces you to realize that there are different ways of doing things yeah. that are right in their own way. Exactly. And I think it's a good lesson to know that you don't always know best. Like, Absolutely. you know, I think it, you know, your active listening skills need to be really amplified because I, I think, you know, I am a confident person yes. and I'm also a very direct person, yeah. which, you know, can be good and bad, you yeah. know? So I think it, it did um, teach me the lesson that I need to step back and read situations a little quicker mm -hmm. and better and not be so Look, I know, you know, I've been to this rodeo. Yeah. Like, I've, I've been aside. here for almost a day. Yeah, yeah exactly. I know everything I know about your doing. country and yeah. culture. <laughs> Everyone's like, uh, no, you don't. Yeah. So yeah. what brought you to Google? Marvin Chow, who runs all of, you know, marketing, the consumer marketing for Google, called me probably when I, I came back to the States, was working at Alexander Wang, and I got a call from Google. And, you know, I went to one interview and I was like, this is not, this is not, for me. Was it the ping pong tables? Um, like, it was, yeah. you know what, it was just the job. And I think it just, I think I had no interest at the time in working for, you know, I just wasn't like, you know, I was still in my fashion mind and, you know, I knew what I was doing. You know, I had, I was in the middle of things at Wang too. And mm. that's another thing that I never leave if I'm in the middle of something. Yeah. I have to be done, you know, in my mind. And I wasn't done in my mind. So I think I went because I was, and, you know, I was curious. Obviously, it's Google. You don't, you don't not go. Right. But, you know, I think I wasn't, it wasn't ready in my mind. Then I got another call and, you know, for another interview. And I, I went and I'm like, okay, okay, but still not, still not ready, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that third time, I was kind of getting ready. I, I feel like I accomplished what I came to do at Wang. Love Alex, but, you know, I think it was time for me to move to the next chapter. Also, I think, I have a thing, if I get too comfortable, it's time for me to go. Yeah. I like to stay uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't ever wanna master everything. Mm -hmm. I kinda wanna be on the edge and be learning something new. I think at that point, I was- It was time. It was time. And I was like, and this would be a huge leap. I think the hesitancy I had was, you know, there's a huge tech learning curve. Like yeah. I'm not technical, yeah. you know, I understand e-commerce, understand performance marketing. Like I could do all of that anytime, but working with real product engineers, like, you know, it's different when you're at an e-commerce company, yeah. you know, I didn't really know about that. So for me, it was important that the job that I took, 
I had really good functional knowledge mm-hmm. because another thing for me, I just want to be able to add value immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the shopping and commerce job came up, I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing at all on this side, but while I'm learning, I feel like at least I can offer some sort of value on like the retail and the and the customer journey mm-hmm. and you know the product side, you know, of, of things, which is like what people are, how people are shopping, what they want. So you know, the scope is big because it's product marketing, it's also brand marketing, and then it's you know research and white space, looking at you know from like a strategy and ops perspective. So you know, and obviously Google touches. Billions of people. <laughs> a couple um, of people have used yeah, a couple, Google a couple once or twice. More people <laughs> than like you know my past you know job. So you know it was it was a very big increase in scope as far as viewership of the work. Yeah. So you know I was going to need to lean in in a different way. But you know, and it was also the middle of the pandemic. So I'm like, is this smart? You know, this is a different different type of company. Never worked anywhere that big. Yeah. And I've always been one removed from the CEO. Yeah. So I'm like you know, or, you know, had the autonomy to run the business myself. So I'm like, this is, you know, now it's like, not that. Obviously yeah. I'm not working for Cinder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I ended up taking the job and it was probably the best thing I've ever done. I'll love say I really like it. You know, I have the autonomy I need. I think it's the first job that I've had that has real purpose, mm-hmm. that we've been able to do things that you can see the impact that it has on people and the products that the engineering and the product team create really do help people find what they need or it helps a small business or, you know, we can expand the reach of somebody's, you know, business. So I really have enjoyed what I'm doing and, you know, the same on the travel side, like you can see your results, which is great. I love too, when I was reading through the notes before the show, that you've brought that community element that you were talking about with your parents at the very beginning into your new job, working with Aurora around the 15% pledge. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that part's always really important to me. And I think, you know, as you get older, you feel like you got, you should be doing something else. You got to give back. And I think, you know, both of my parents, that's like a huge part of their lives is um, charity. Like my dad still every Monday goes out and gives food to the homeless, you know? So I think it's just a big part of my my family. So when I saw the chance to have this platform, you know, and I think one thing about Google is they're amazing at really looking at underserved populations across business units and really figuring out, okay, how can we, because, you know, the ecosystem's not good if it's only one set of businesses. Right. Like you need a variety of set of businesses. So Aurora, you know, after George Floyd, obviously started this 15% pledge. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I always thought it was interesting and I've known her from the CFDA, mm-hmm. but you know, I was like, how can we, how can we help her expand this? Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she has the businesses taking the pledge, but you also have this, the businesses who are in her database who at times, like sometimes can't even get to the pledge, right? Because mm-hmm. of supply chain issues pricing, you know, maybe they're not noticeable online enough, but like very reason. So I'm like, how can we help train them? So the first iteration of our partnership was really us sponsoring their database mm-hmm. and all the businesses in it and doing three trainings a year on, you know, e-commerce, like Merchant Center, like how do you use Google Analytics? Like how can you improve your business so that when it comes to you giving 15% of your product to Sephora, that you you have the line of sight mm-hmm. on, on how to do that and be successful at it. And then this year we actually expanded to do an inaugural award that we gave $200,000 to one of the businesses. And so people, I mean, we had 
thousands of entries. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Which was, I think we weren't expecting that because all of a sudden we were like, oh, we, we got to go through these. It's back <laughs> to that Starbucks moment where yeah, people are beating down the really door. It really was. We were like, oh. But I mean, the thoughtfulness that people put into their videos as far as like, who they were, what their accolades were, how they were going to use the money, like what their challenges were. I mean, it's like you want to give it to everybody. But um, yeah, so we ended up giving five and like literally in the gala, Brandon Blackwood, who's a designer, ponied up and gave another one, you know, because I think everyone was just like, oh my God, this is such a great feeling to see these business owners go on stage and be excited about this. And I think, you know, the great thing about the pledge and I think why we partner with them is that you could see that some of these businesses will be viable. Like that's the whole point, right? Yeah. It's not it's not going to be good if no one ever, no one's successful. Yeah. But I think there's some really um, pending success stories there. It's amazing. You're like Shark Tank. You created exactly. the Google Shopping Shark Tank. Well, it's so funny because <laughs> Emma Greed's on their board who was on oh, Shark oh, Tank. I love that. <laughs> Well, Stephanie, I could talk to you all day. Yeah. I've already gone over my time by no, far. So no, thank yeah. you for spending this much time telling me your story, telling us about your confidence journey. Yes. Um, can I ask you, where can we find you? I won't ask where you're going next because I don't want to get you in trouble with Google, <laughs> but I think the countdown is on, guys. So you have to make sure that you take good care of her. <laughs> where can we find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's to Stephanie Horton. I'm S. Horton 007. Ooh. I love James Bond. I love it. On Instagram and Twitter. Fantastic. Yes. We, we will all be checking that out for sure. Yes. Thank you again for spending your time with us today no. on Claim Your Confidence. Joe, thank you for always doing the best producing in the business at Thanks, Newsstand Joe. Studios <laughs> and to Rockefeller Center for giving us this amazing podcast booth to podcast out of. I want to leave the listeners with one question mm -hmm. because Stephanie, you talk about getting comfortable with the uncomfortable and how that's been such a huge part of your career, moving before you're ready in many ways. Yes. What are you guys doing to move before you're ready and get comfortable being a little uncomfortable? Shoot both Stephanie and me some love in the Instagram. Let us know what you think. Slide into the DMs. And for everyone who's listening, thank you for being here. I look forward to welcoming you back next week. I'm Lydia Finette, and this is Claim Your Confidence. Have a great week.